Now, would you turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 13? And again, I'll be preaching through a few chapters of Judges uh, to look at the whole story, but we'll begin by reading verses 1 through 5 in chapter 13, which says this, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, make your name holy in this time and in our homes, in this, in this place. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. Oh, Jesus, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. So I feel like I can say this without being embarrassed because we're all family, right? Um, but I am a bit of a superhero nerd. I love superheroes. And growing up, my two favorite superheroes were Spider-Man and Wolverine. I loved both of them so much. I had their action figures and their comic books and t-shirts. And as a little boy, I would uh, agonize over the choice of which one I would rather be. Like I would actually have to make that decision one day. And it was hard because they were both so different. Not just in their powers, they were different in how they approached life. They were two very different types of hero. Spider-Man, he was young and he was bright. He was joyful. He sought love and companionship and he was very virtuous. Wolverine, he was older and brooding. He was a loner, reluctant as a hero, vengeful and kind of amoral. And if you know anything about the development of these, these characters, Spider-Man came out earlier in the 20th century and was an instant hit. Wolverine came out a bit later and experienced a very surprising rise in popularity that surpassed anything the creators hoped for for the character. And he continues to grow while Spider-Man's popularity was on a steady uh, and very slow decline. And it kind of reflects the cultural shift in the 20th century. Spider-Man embodies the more traditional hero whose virtue is elevated to the same level as his strength. Whereas Wolverine is the postmodern anti-hero who has great strength with flaws that are equally as great. And we see that everywhere nowadays, really. It resonates with a generation that values authenticity above traditional virtue. The ideal of let's be real and accept our flaws. And I think that these two types of heroes, they capture two ways of, of thinking about and approaching our relationship to God. The Spider-Man way, which says, use me and bless me because of my virtue. And the Wolverine way, 
which says, use me and bless me, but I'm going to live however I want. But the Bible counteracts both of these viewpoints, and it doesn't offer us heroes like either of them. When I became a Christian as a teenager, I read the Bible with uh, my mind shaped by these stories. But to my disappointment at the time, I realized the Bible doesn't give us heroes. The Bible offers us people like Samson, men who are not heroic, but are vindictive, boastful, liars, womanizers, men whose flaws get the better of them and have no great strength of their own. The absence of heroes was kind of disappointing to me, but I came to realize that's the point. There are no human heroes. Everyone's hands are stained and dirty. Everyone is weak. If people could rise to God's standards, the standards of my comic book-fueled imagination, we wouldn't need the gospel. We wouldn't need Jesus. We, if we're honest with ourselves, we'll admit that we fall into the same traps as, as these men in the, in the scriptures, which I think is the appeal of both types of heroes, the Spider-Mans and the Wolverines, right? We, we admire both their, of their strengths because we know that we are weak. We admire Spider-Man's virtue because we know that we lack it. We admire Wolverine's flaws because we can relate, and yet we want to be regarded as good and great regardless, just as he is. But the Bible doesn't offer us those kinds of heroes. But that, that doesn't mean it's completely without heroes. Abraham doubts God's promises again and again, yet God keeps his promises. The story of Exodus is not the story of Moses' heroism, but of God's, how he delivers his people. We saw Gideon's story last week, whom God called a mighty man of valor, but only because he promised to be with him. King David, he rose from greatness, from his lowly beginnings, but power birthed pride, and that turned into heinous sin. And still, God kept his promises, and through David, he sent the world the hero it longed for. He sent Jesus, a human hero, but not merely a human hero. A hero who identifies with every human element of frailty and weakness, but who transcends them embodying our greatest desires and virtues as well. And so we must read Samson's story not as a story of his heroism, but of God's, because God is the hero of the Scriptures. Even though Samson is the most superhero-like of all the people in, in the Bible, I'll grant you that, we should not view him as a superhero, but as a pointer. A pointer inward, and a pointer upward, because Samson is a picture of us. And, maybe somewhat surprisingly, he's a picture of Christ. And it's those two things that I want to examine this morning. So first, let's look at how Samson is a picture of us. And to do this, we need to see how, first of all, he's a picture of Israel, the, the people, because he is a condensed little microcosm of the nation of Israel during the time of Judges. Both were brought into the world through a miraculous conception and birth to uh, uh, an older barren uh, couple who couldn't have children that God then gave them. 
For both, God took something weak and made it incredibly strong, but only when he was with them. Both were given a special law or code that's, that, that was supposed to separate them from the people around them, right? Israel had the, the law, and on top of that, Samson had the Nazarite code. Both repeatedly broke their respective law and code. Samson, he was drawn to foreign women the way Israel is drawn to foreign gods. The book of Judges tells us how the the people of Israel thought. They did what was right in their own eyes. And then in chapter 14, it tells us that's exactly how Samson made his decisions and went through life, doing what was right in his own eyes. And most importantly, though, God's grace is powerfully on display in both Israel and in Samson as God remains faithful despite their unfaithfulness. So let me tell you just a quick version of Samson's story in case you aren't familiar with it. When we get to Samson's story, we've gone through several cycles of this downward spiral of the people of Israel where they continue to do what is evil in God's eyes. And so God gives them over to nations that oppress them. And so in their oppression, they call out and cry out to God. And God raises up a judge, meaning a deliverer or a savior, to rescue them. And after a time of fellowship with God, they fall back into sin before God, and the cycle repeats. But when we get to Samson, something has changed. The people are still doing what is evil in God's eyes, and he again has given them over to be ruled by another nation. But this time, they aren't crying out to him. They've become comfortable and complacent. They're assimilating into this culture. They're content with giving up their incredible privileges, but God is not content with it. And that's where Samson comes in. We already read some of chapter 13. Samson is miraculously born as a promised deliverer for the, for the people of Israel. He takes a Nazarite vow which was a special vow of dedication to God described in number six, if you're interested. Um, It had three parts that you couldn't drink alcohol. You couldn't touch any dead bodies of any kind, and you couldn't cut your hair. It was a way of being specially set apart to God. And Samson lives by this code since birth. And then he grows up. And in chapter 14, he sees a Philistine woman that he wants And he tells his parents to get her for him as a wife, which his parents know is not a good idea. So his father and mother say to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. So the first thing we see of Samson's adult life, he's breaking a rule of the covenant people and intermarrying with their oppressors, doing what is right in his own eyes. Now listen to verse 4. His father and mother did not know that this was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. So even through Samson's disobedience, God is in control. You see that? It's like in the story of Joseph when he says to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. 
Nothing is outside of God's control or outside of his ability to use for the good of his people. It's the same idea here in Samson's life. This is God's plan to stir up trouble between Israel and the Philistines who would be, who they, so that they wouldn't be complacent and comfortable being united with them. Because if they kept up how things were going, they would have completely assimilated into the Philistines. And Israel as a people would be gone. And God is not okay with that. So the story goes on. As Samson is on his way to meet his future Philistine wife, he is attacked by a lion and he kills it. And then several days later, he passes it again and he sees that some bees have made a hive in the carcass. And he scoops out some of the honey that the bees have made and he eats it. Now, don't miss that because it's a, it's a weird and unexpectedly important detail. He just broke one of his Nazarite vows, touching something dead. Then he throws a big traditional Philistine feast where there would have been much drinking and breaks another of his Nazarite vows. And at his wedding celebration, he tells a riddle about that lion and about the honey, and he bets them they can't figure it out with a big expensive bet, and they can't figure it out. Who could figure that out? And so they cheat by talking to his new wife, and they get the answer. And he's so angry about that, in retaliation and rage, he kills some of them, breaking, of course, one of the Ten Commandments, a kind of big one, if you ask me. And then in chapter 15, in retaliation for Samson's murderous rage, his new Philistine father-in-law gives Samson's wife to his best man and won't let him see her. So Samson says in verse 3, This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. Do you see what he's saying? So he knew that he was sinning last time, but this time he thinks he'll be innocent. So this time his retaliation isn't murder. He just burns their fields and destroying their livelihood. In retaliation for that, they kill Samson's wife. In retaliation for that, he kills hundreds of them, saying in verse 7, I swear I will be avenged on you, and after that, I will quit. Do you think he quits? No, he doesn't quit. But uh, the Philistines, they come to get him now. And by this point, his fellow Israelites start taking notice of what's going on. And 3,000 of his fellow countrymen come and confront him because they don't want any trouble with the Philistines. They say in verse 11, do you not know, Samson, that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And he says to them, as they did to me, so I have done to them. So he basically says, they started it. He's utterly immature. But we also see the faithlessness of the Israelites, don't we? That they are so content with being absorbed into this culture and losing their special relationship as the people of God. And they're fearful. So they turn Samson over to the Philistines. And he allows himself to be tied up by the Israelites and turned over. But when the Philistines surround him, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him and he breaks the ropes and kills 1,000 of them with the jawbone of a donkey. Again, touching something dead and breaking one of his vows. 
And then he boasts about it with a little song that he makes up. And then in chapter 16, he sleeps with a couple prostitutes. And Samson falls in love with another Philistine woman named Delilah. And then the Philistines see their chance because they've gotten his secrets through the woman that he loved once before. And so they try it once again. And they offer uh, to pay her over 1,000 pieces of silver if she tells them the secret to his strength. So she asks him how someone might hypothetically bind him and make him powerless. Uh, and he lies and says, use fresh bowstrings. So she tries it, and then she calls an ambush, and it doesn't work, obviously, so she asks again, and he lies again, and they ambush again, and he escapes again, and this happens a third time, and finally she says, how can you say I love you while, trying, while lying to me? And he tells her about the one Nazarite vow that he has not yet broken. He's never cut his hair. So she has someone shave his head. And then calls for the Philistines. And when she yells to Samson that they're here like she did the other times, he says in verse 20, I will go out as at the other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in prison. Then the Philistines, they throw a huge party at the temple to, uh, to their God, the rulers, and several thousand other people. They celebrate their victory over Samson, and they bring him out of prison to mock him and have him entertain them. And then let me read you the end, starting in verse 28. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O oh Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me. Only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested. And he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength. And the house fell upon the lords and upon the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. And that is the story of Samson. So what can we learn from it? Let me start by my initial reaction to this story, which I've already told you, I love superheroes, which means growing up, I had daydreamed about having superpowers more times than I can count. And because of that, when I read Samson's story, it made me so mad because he basically had superpowers and he risks losing them so many times for such dumb reasons. He just had to keep three little rules. Honestly, they're rules that I could keep pretty easily, right? I mean, don't touch dead things. Fine. I don't want to do that anyway. Don't uh, drink alcohol. Fine. Most of that stuff tastes nasty. Don't cut your hair. I can go pretty, I've already gone pretty long without cutting my hair. I could keep going. Heck, I would even give up Annie Ann's pretzels and Cinnabon and Chick-fil-A for life if I could have super strength like Samson. But Samson, he risks it all repeatedly just to satisfy some impulsive desires, just to have a little fun, just to get a little taste of that honey 
And I was thinking about that, and I was thinking of what a fool he is. And then I realized that that happens all the time. Men risk their families to satisfy impulsive desires. People risk their relationship with God just to get a little taste of sin. This happens to all of us. It's impulsivity. It's lack of self-control. It's immaturity. It's a major downfall for many people, many Christians, who the, the need to give in to every desire. When Samson was angry, he fought. When he was wronged, he wronged people back. When he was hungry, he ate. When he was lustful, he slept around. When James says, describes this in his New Testament letter, he says that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. The desire, then desire when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Samson gave in to the temptations of his desires. But I think an even greater tragedy in Samson's life was his his selfishness and his pride. Samson's life collapsed under the weight of his pride. God gave him this amazing gift, but he let that gift go to his head. And he came to see it as God's personal endorsement of him. He assumed that God would keep blessing him, even though one by one, he broke every Nazarite vow. And God did continue blessing him patiently until God, until Samson finally broke that third and final one. But why that last one, I think is an important thing to think about. And if we think about it, we can see why. Why would Samson tell this woman who repeatedly showed herself to be untrustworthy, why would he tell her the true secret to his strength? The only reason I can think of is that he didn't think he would lose it. He had finally crossed the line where he thought his strength came from himself rather than from God. And that he was exempt from following through on his commitment to God and obeying God. The tragedy of Samson's life is that he ended up thinking more about himself than of God. God gives each of us gifts, gifts of of grace, meaning that they are undeserved and that they they are about God's greatness, not ours. They should actually keep us humble. But too often we become puffed up in our own self-importance. We think that we are better than others and then exempt from certain areas of obedience. But Samson's life should be a sober reminder that our spiritual gifts, our gifts in general, our talents even, are not more impressive or more important than faithful obedience. At least not in God's eyes which are the only eyes that ultimately matter. But there's something I think that's very interesting about Samson's legacy because despite all of his shortcomings, he is included in the list of heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11. Why? I think it's because there there are some crucial things about faith that God wants us to understand from his story. Because there's something that's kind of strange but true is is that you can exercise a kind of faith while being unfaithful. 
Samson knew that his strength came from God throughout his, his life. He believed the angel's prophecy and what God had said. He believed that God would bless his gift of strength when he needed it. And so, and, and in that sense, every mighty act that he ever did was by faith. And God used him. But while Samson believed God would be faithful to his word, Samson didn't believe that he needed to be faithful to God's word. Samson shows us the, a third form of religious division. Last week in Gideon's story, we, I, I tried to point out two kinds of religious division in his life. He started out divided between where he was and where he wanted to be, Gideon was. If you remember, he was fearful. He was afraid and he knew he shouldn't be and he didn't want to be. And he continued walking with God and God helped him overcome it. And with this kind of division, God is patient and gracious. But then Gideon fell into the most heinous form of religious division, which is he was divided between an outward and public lip service to God when his heart was far from him. This kind of division is hypocrisy and God opposes it. But Samson shows us a third form of division where he gives one part of his life to God but keeps God out of the other parts of his life. He's content to be godly in one respect but is content to be ungodly in other respects. And it is this kind of division that I fear most for our church. Here is, is, is what it comes down to in Samson's life. He trusted God to empower his gifting, but he didn't trust him to satisfy his appetites and his desires. And so he disobeyed God and he indulged in sin and it led to his downfall. He only trusted God halfway, but God wants all of us, our whole life, our whole hearts, we are all prone to look to God for his blessing in one part of our life while ignoring his promises in another part of our life. Maybe, just like Samson, you trust God to use your strengths, but look elsewhere for your satisfaction and joy. Maybe we trust God for our salvation, but we don't trust Him with our, with our finances. So we fall into greed rather than generosity. I could go on and on. With, we, we must recognize this and avoid this kind of division and trust God in all aspects of our lives. And I want us to see another important thing about Samson and ultimately our unfaithfulness. It doesn't negate God's faithfulness. God is faithful to and through his people, even when they are unfaithful, though his faithfulness may look different than we expect. You may ask, why did God keep blessing Samson for so long when he was sinning and breaking his vows? Well, if by blessing you mean Samson's strength, it was because God was being faithful to his word. He promised he would use Samson to deliver Israel from the Philistines, and he faithfully kept that promise, even when Samson disobeyed him. And God was amazingly patient with, with Samson. I mean, he, he gave him so many chances, but Samson ignored them. But when he finally broke that last vow, God's patience was over, and he left him. 
But how do you understand God's leaving Samson? Do you understand it as judgment? As, as God being fed up and punishing him? Or do you understand it as a blessing? Because how you understand blessing is very important. Do you only see Samson's strength as a blessing? I would dare to say that the removal of his strength was an even greater blessing because it was that that finally humbled him and brought him back to dependence on God. And that's ultimately what a true blessing is, that which brings us close to God. We see it all the time, though. People mistake their their blessings from God as an endorsement of their lives. Well, this is going well, they say, and God wants me to be happy, so it can't be that wrong. We mistake God's patience with sin as license to sin. And as Romans 2 says, that God's kindness and forbearance and patience are meant to lead you to repentance. But if you are truly God's child and insist on following the path of ignoring God's guidance and greatest good, He will discipline you in order to bring you near to His heart. Because He won't let you become complacent in losing your position as His child. Just like Israel was complacent in becoming integrated into the Philistines, but He wouldn't let them, He won't let you either. And it will be hard, like it was for Samson, but it will turn out for your good. With, with Samson's kind of division, God's grace toward you can be a kind of severe mercy. Hebrews 2.11 describes God's discipline as saying, it seems painful rather than pleasant, but it later yields peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. That's what's happened to Samson. He was disciplined, and what happened in his life? It produced the fruit of righteousness, namely humility and repentance and reliance upon God's strength. We see that. He was humbled by being brought low, and in that lowliness, he was used greatly by God, greater than at any point in his life. At his lowest point, he was used by God in a greater way than any other time in his life. And that's how it works. Jesus says those who exalt themselves will be humble. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. It's the upside-down way of the kingdom. Because that is how God's glorious grace, His goodness and strength is most powerfully displayed. Paul says that God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. For because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So we live in in. This, this way, in humble dependence upon God. Because we were born. Born again this way. The only way you can be born again, saved, is by humbling yourself to the point where you say, I can't do this on my own. I am lost. 
I can't save myself. I'm powerless. I need you, Jesus. You are my only hope. And it's, it's then, in that lowliness, that you can have abundant life and be made a son or daughter of the Lord of the universe, a co-heir with Christ the King. So the only boasting that we do is to Him, in Him. And it is to Him that I want to draw our attention next because this is what I love. I told you, Samson is not only a picture of us, but he's also a picture of Christ. He points us to Christ both in positive and negative ways. By negative, I mean he leaves us wanting more. He, he, he points to Christ by what he is not. You, you recall in verse 5 of the text that we read at the, at the beginning of this message, when the angel is prophesying about Samson, he says he will begin to save Israel. But he's the last judge in, in the book of Judges. If he begins, who will finish He's a Savior who can't finish the job. He's a Savior whose victory is helpful, but incomplete and short-lived. We need a Savior who can finish the job, who, whose victory is eternal. And that is exactly what Christ offers us. In 1 Corinthians 15, uh, it says this, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, Christ offers eternal victory, eternal life. And where Samson, he piled up the bodies of his enemies, Jesus does something better. You see, there's a more thorough way of defeating your enemies, isn't there? If you think about it, an enemy who is one who stands in opposition to you. And if you kill them, sure, they're, they're no longer in your way, but that's it. But if you can somehow change them, win them to your side, make them friends and allies, then they're not only no longer in your way, but they're helping you to advance. It's a much more incredible and powerful way of conquering. And that is the way Jesus does it. It's in that spirit that we fight the fight of faith with Christ. Not like Samson with weapons and with vengeance, but with love and forgiveness, and truth to advance God's kingdom by winning enemies of God as eternal friends of God. But Samson also points to Jesus in positive ways. Samson, I mean, Jesus is, is the better Samson in, in many ways. He's also born miraculously. He has incredible strength over demons, disease, and death. He, like Samson, was betrayed by someone who acted as a friend and handed him over to Gentile oppressors. He, like Samson, was chained and tortured and put on public display to be mocked. He, like Samson, dies with his arms outstretched. And through that death, though it looked like he was defeated, he actually defeats the enemy, gaining his greatest victory in death. But unlike Samson, Jesus was not put in chains for his sin. He was put in chains for ours. 
Samson was a strong man made weak through his own sin. Jesus was the mighty God who voluntarily became weak to save us from the chains of our sin. That is the good news. Because we are all like Samson. And we are all people who have been driven by our lusts. People who who compromise and are proud and live for ourselves. But he was wounded for that. And when we behold him, behold that truth, it changes us. When you cry out in humble dependence upon God like Samson finally did, he will not forsake you. He he will accept you and save you from your sins because Christ is our true hero. He is the ultimate Savior. Let's pray. Our Holy Father, we thank you for being so committed to what's best for your people that you won't let us become complacent and at home in the world. We are stirred by your faithfulness to and through us even when we are unfaithful. And we ask you now to align our hearts with yours no matter what, no matter what it takes, because we trust that being wholly yours is is the best possible way to be. Lord, we pray that you would work in our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.